Amen. Do you have your Bible with you this morning? Good. You need to turn to Philemon, the book of Philemon, chapter 1. There's only one chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, I want to encourage you to grab one from the pew rack there in front of you. Open to Philemon so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. Last week, we continued our look at the body of this letter. Specifically, we focused our attention on the impact that conversion has on the life of a believer. I told you that this new life in Christ is not invisible, but it is visible. Paul had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and you could see it. Philemon had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and you could see it. Onesimus had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and you could see it. The question that we want to wrestle with every week when we gather together is, have you had a life-changing encounter with Jesus? And can anyone see it? These baptisms that we celebrated just a minute ago are a picture of that life-changing experience we have with Jesus. But the real proof of that will be in the days and weeks and months ahead. You know, I feel like, I feel like we are kind of living in this tension right now, and, and some of us are, are imbalanced in that tension, especially as we talk about the conversion of, of several little ones uh, over, over the last several weeks. There are some of us that respond to that in an imbalanced way and just say, yes, finally, that's over. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We'll just let, let, them, let them go their way with Jesus now, right? That, that's imbalanced because we want to say to those little ones, we will walk with you. <laughs> this is not the end. In fact, that's why I told uh, Drake just a little while ago in the back, I said, buddy, this is not the end. This is only the beginning of a long journey with Jesus that we're ready to walk with you, Right? The, the, other, the other side of it is that we could get so excited about all of this uh, that, we, that we just say, hallelujah, and, and, that, and that's it. That's it. Or we get so skeptical that we say, I don't know about this. They are awfully young, and I don't know about this. There's an awful lot of them. Maybe they're just getting caught up in the wave of what everybody else is doing. Well, the answer is the same either way, right? We say hallelujah today for what God is doing. Amen. And we say, we will see as the years go by, and we will walk with you as the years go by. I want us to have a balanced approach to that, especially because there are several more coming. Uh, We're going to baptize a few more next week. There are a couple more that I expect to make professions of faith just any day now. And uh, so we want to walk that balanced road with these guys. So back to Philemon. That was a whole different thing. Back to Philemon. Last week in this letter, I told you that the family of faith grows just like your physical family grows by new birth. By new birth. As, as people are born into the kingdom of God, the family grows. And I told you about thinking about your spiritual parents and thinking about having some spiritual children. Are, are you reproducing the gospel in the next generation? I told you also that we want to be useful wherever we, walk, wherever we find ourselves. Paul found himself in prison. And he preached the gospel to a slave who also found himself there somehow. He didn't wait till he was free. He didn't wait till everything was lined up. He didn't wait till he had all of his ducks in a row. Paul simply was faithful to the Lord wherever he was. And I want to encourage you to do that. Don't wait for the next big thing to come around to be useful to God. Don't whine about how difficult things are now uh, to be useful to God. And don't stop being useful to God until you die. And then you hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. The phrase we used last week to describe this was bloom where you're planted. That God has you where you are for a reason. Be faithful to him there. We also talked about how new life in Christ changes everything. That when we come to faith in Christ, when God rescues us by his grace, there are some invisible changes that happen. 
These are positional changes. All of a sudden, we go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. More than a friend, we become his child by grace, by adoption, right? There are some invisible things that happen in a courtroom type of setting where we who were once guilty are declared not guilty. In fact, beyond not guilty, we are declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to our account. All of that is invisible. We cannot see it. But there are visible parts of conversion. There are visible things when it comes to this new life, like a new way to talk and a new way to live and a new way to see the world that will be obvious and observable by the people who are around us. The new life is not merely invisible change. It is also visible change. And if you claim to have the invisible change but have no visible change, there is something terribly wrong. And the answer in that case is not just to knuckle down and create some visible changes, but rather to really place your trust in Jesus Christ. Really rest in Him. And those visible changes will come inevitably. And then finally, we talked about how part of what it looks like to follow after Jesus is doing the right thing, even when it's a hard thing. And we observe just from our life experience that most of the time the right thing is the hard thing. Rare is the day when the right thing is the easy thing. But we want to follow Jesus and do the right thing, even when it's the hard thing, and he empowers that. Well, this week, we're going to continue to look at the body of the letter. I want to remind you that we are moving slow, like snail's pace through Philemon. We're looking at this letter through a magnifying glass, at least. Some could argue we're looking through a microscope. But each week, I've been reading the whole letter to you so that you'll see two things. First, that this is a really short letter. And second, that it is concise and powerful. The argument that Paul makes is concise and powerful. Specifically this week, we're going to study two verses that have at least three big ideas. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God. We're going to talk about the restoration and transformation of a relationship between brothers who were formerly at odds with one another. And then, at the end of the day, we're going to talk through this whole idea of slavery as we consider exactly what did Paul want Philemon to do with Onesimus. And, and I'll shoot straight with you from the beginning today. I'm nervous about that last part. Um, I want to communicate clearly to you, pastorally to you, but I realize that in talking about that, I'm going to be hitting uh, either directly or indirectly on some pretty sensitive areas. And uh, I'm nervous about that. And so I'm going to pray in just a minute. I'm going to pray that God will help me to preach and you to hear um, from him, right? So let's read together the book of Philemon. This is what God's word says. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now 
is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Verses 15 and 16 is what we study today. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, we're glad to be here, glad to have witnessed all that we've witnessed, glad to participate in worship. We don't want to stop participating in worship now as we hear your word. And Father, I I feel uh, especially inadequate today, uh, weak today. I am especially aware today that what this group of people needs is not a word from me. They need to hear from you. And so we pray that you will speak with power and authority through your word, that you will help me to speak as your representative on your behalf. And we pray that you will give us all ears that can hear, eyes that can see, hearts that can receive and do receive all that you would give to us today. Have your way. This, we are yours. This time is yours. This world is yours. Do with us what you will. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, so look at verse 15, at least the first part of verse 15 of Philemon. He says, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while. In order to really understand this, we need to revisit a little bit of the facts about the story. Philemon, the recipient of this letter, had been converted under Paul's preaching in Ephesus. Philemon lived in Colossae, which is not far from Ephesus. And evidently, while Paul was preaching in Ephesus, Philemon visited, heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and was saved. Came to faith in Christ. Then he went back home, and he hosted a church in his house. That means that Philemon was probably wealthy and influential. We know for certain that he had earned a reputation of serving the Lord well by caring for brothers and sisters, by caring for the saints. We also know that he had a slave whose name was Onesimus, who was not very helpful. His name means helpful, but he wasn't very helpful. And worse than that, he ran away at some point and likely stole something on his way out the door. And he didn't just run away to the next city down the street. He ran as far away from Philemon and Colossae as he could realistically get. 
some 1,300 miles to Rome. And in Rome, by God's providence, he ran into the Apostle Paul, who happened to be imprisoned in Rome. The same apostle that preached the gospel to uh, Onesimus' master in Ephesus was now in Rome, imprisoned because of his preaching of the gospel. Onesimus, the wicked runaway slave, ends up in Rome, somehow comes into contact with Paul. Paul preaches the same gospel to him that he preached to his master Philemon, and Onesimus is converted. Onesimus repents of his sins and trusts in Jesus Christ and is saved. And as a new believer, Paul encourages him to go back home to Philemon and seek restoration and reconciliation with him. And he doesn't just send him on his way on his own. Paul writes this letter to Philemon and hands it to Onesimus to carry back on his way. He also was carrying the the book of Colossians as he traveled. So that's a little bit of the backstory of how all of this came to pass And all of this seems like it's the work of Onesimus. Like as I tell you the story, it seems like all of this happens by the hand of Onesimus. And yet Paul chooses in verse 15, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to use the passive voice of the verb to refer to their separation. Notice he doesn't say, perhaps Onesimus left you for this purpose. Perhaps Onesimus ran away for this purpose. He rather says, perhaps he was removed, was separated from you for this purpose. As if there's some other actor involved in this. Some other force that is involved in the separation of these two. Now scholars refer to this passive voice usage here as the divine passive. And it seems reasonable that Paul is attributing here the separation of these two men to the hand of God. He's saying ultimately, in a very subtle way, it is God who is at work in this whole mess of of Onesimus' desertion of you, his running away, his subsequent conversion. It is God who is orchestrating all of this for a purpose. God has a purpose in all of this circumstance. Now, when we zoom out from all of these facts, Paul writes that perhaps the reason for the separation was to have him back as a brother. And here, we begin to talk about divine sovereignty. We've got to talk about divine sovereignty. Notice that Paul starts verse 15 by saying, perhaps. Perhaps. That sounds quite uncertain, right? Maybe. Just maybe. But we shouldn't read this word as if Paul is uncertain as to whether or not God has purpose in the whole situation. Rather, we should read it as if he is uncertain exactly what the purpose is. Does that make sense? It's not as if Paul is saying, I don't know, maybe God has a plan. It's not what Paul is saying. He is saying, oh, God definitely has a plan. Maybe it's this. Does that make sense? Because Paul knew for certain that God was working in every situation, in everything that happens in all of his creation. God is sovereign and overruling all of it. In fact, look what Paul says about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Paul says, and we know right? We, we are certain. This is not a question. This is not, this is not uh, a doubt. We know that God causes, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. We know that God is working all things together for good for his people. It's not a question of does God have a plan in this circumstance. It's a question of exactly what is God's plan in this circumstance. And we must be convinced of this as well. 
We must be confident that no matter what we face, the Lord is ruling over it. And he is using it for our good and his glory. Which Cooper Thompson reminds me consistently are the same thing. Our good and his glory go together hand in hand. He works for his glory, which is our good. Now, despite Paul's confidence in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, there are situations that we face where it's hard to tell in real time what that good thing is that he is up to. Would you agree with that? Let me give you some biblical examples of this. Think about the story of Joseph from the Old Testament. You remember some of that story? Do you think in real time Joseph was able to say, oh, this is good for me that my brothers hate me. Oh, this is good for me that they want to kill me. Oh, this is good for me uh, that they sell me into slavery. Oh, this is good for me that my master's wife is trying to seduce me. Oh, this is good for me that she has made false accusation against me. Oh, this is good for me that now I find myself in prison. Oh, this is good for me that now I'm in charge of all the land of Egypt. Do you think in real time he was able to see exactly how it was working for good? Maybe. I think more likely he had a general confidence in the sovereignty of God in all things. And then as it plays out, he's able to see more and more clearly what the good thing is God was up to. In fact, at the very end of the story, he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To spare an entire people for himself. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Think about that in Joseph's life. Think about it in the life of Esther, who became queen of a foreign land by unusual circumstances at the exact right time to save her people from annihilation. In fact, her uncle Mordecai says, perhaps you are queen for such a time as this. Did you think in real time she saw all that God was doing? No, I don't think she saw it in real time, but at least Mordecai had confidence in the sovereignty of God that God was at work even when we couldn't see what he was doing. Think about Naomi, who went to a foreign land during a famine with her husband and sons. She came back from that land with only one daughter-in-law, Ruth. Her husband died, her sons died, her other daughter-in-law left her. And it just so happened that Ruth, the daughter-in-law, went to pick up leftover grain in the field of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, just so happened that the field belonged to Boaz. And as this story plays out, Ruth and Boaz get married. They become the grandparents of King David, who becomes the great far-off grandfather of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think they saw all of that in real time? No, but they trusted God's sovereignty over all things. Think about Paul's own life as he is persecuted and shipwrecked and beaten and let down in a basket and all of these things. Do you think he understood in real time exactly what God was doing? No, but he had a trust, a confidence in the sovereignty of God over all things. And he was able to see it work out as the days went by. Now, think about your own life and how you are able to look back after a difficult time and see God bringing you through that difficult time right to where he wanted you to be. I think this is an interesting verse in Philemon and one that gives us a great deal of comfort in difficult times. When it seems like we cannot catch a break, when it seems like God has forsaken us and he is out of control, we can learn from this verse that even then he is at work. Even then he is getting us to the place we need to be. Maybe, just maybe, the difficulty that you are currently experiencing is working for your good. 
Now, there's a part of me that wants to say it like that, and the other part of me wants to say, definitely. Definitely. You need to settle this in your heart that whatever is going on in your life, God is using for your good and for his glory. Maybe, just maybe, you'll be able to look back on this difficult season that you're currently in 10 years from now and truly appreciate what God was doing. Now, before we move on from this point, I need to make a pastoral disclaimer of sorts. Notice that the focus here, as Paul talks about it, is on the hand of God, not the guilt of Onesimus. Paul's focus here is on the hand of God at work, not the guilt of Onesimus. But let's make no mistake, Onesimus is guilty. He has done wrong. And we need to be careful here. We need to acknowledge that in his great sovereignty, God will use even the sinful actions of men to accomplish his good purpose. The greatest example of this is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That, that Jesus was crucified at the hands of sinful men by the predetermined plan of God. God will use even the sinful actions of men to accomplish his good purpose. But those men will still be held accountable for their sinful actions. So the disclaimer is this. Do not use this principle of divine sovereignty as an excuse to sin. Like, if you've got any of that going on in your heart right now, if you're like, did he just say? Did he just say that God will use even my sinful actions for good? Here we go. What kind of trouble can I cause today that God will turn for good? If you've got that going on in your heart, it might be an unredeemed heart. Because a redeemed heart doesn't want to say, how can I sin so that God will twist it? The redeemed heart says, I want to follow hard after him. But when we look at the sovereignty of God, he is so high. He is so sovereign that he uses even the sinful actions of men to accomplish his good purpose. But they are not unaccountable for those sin, those sins. Fair enough? So here's the application from this first little bit. Number one. Be confident in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. Like, let's settle that here and now. Let's settle deep in our hearts a conviction and a confidence that God is sovereign over all things. And we do this by knowing what the Bible says. I just gave you three quick, epic examples of God's sovereignty over all things. There are hundreds more of them in the scriptures. If you want to be convinced of God's sovereignty, you don't need my argument for it. You need to see it as it's revealed in the scriptures. Be confident in the sovereignty of God by knowing what the Bible says about it. Be confident in the sovereignty of God by reflecting on his work in your life. Think back to all those times where you thought, what are you doing, Lord? Do you not know? Do you not care? And now you can look back and say, ah, of course you were doing that. Of course you were showing me how much I need you. Of course you were showing me how much I need other people. Settle this by reflecting on his work in your own life. And, and I would say thirdly, settle the matter of divine sovereignty by hearing stories from other saints. Other people in this room who can tell you about times where everything just seemed to go crazy. And yet God was clearly working right through it. Read, read it in biographies from saints long ago. Don't just have conversations with people who live in your neighborhood. Have conversations with people who lived 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. 
and hear them talk about divine sovereignty. Bottom line is, be confident in the sovereignty and the goodness of God and settle it here and now. That's number one. Number two, be useful where you are, wherever you are. This text should give us confidence to persevere through difficult circumstances because God is using and has promised to use all things to bring about ultimate good in your life. So whatever you find yourself in right now, perhaps, who knows, maybe, just maybe, God is designing that and orchestrating that for your good. Beyond that, let's say he's definitely doing it. Therefore, persevere. Move forward. In confidence. And be useful where you are. Read on in verse 15. He says, first... For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while. And there we talk about the sovereignty of God. Read on, he says, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, First Baptist folks, you might remember that a while back, we did an evening series of sermons on a little Greek word, hina, which means so that. It's oftentimes translated so that. It's the word that kind of clues us in to the purpose behind something. Oftentimes, the divine purpose behind something. Well, guess what? That little word is right there. When it says that you would have him back forever, it's henna. And Paul here kind of speculates that perhaps the divine purpose in all of this separation, perhaps God's purpose in the separation of these two men is the restoration and transformation of the relationship between these two brothers. Notice he says, perhaps he was separated from you for a while so that you could have him back forever. Perhaps you would receive him back no longer just as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother. And not just a brother, a beloved brother, which is the same language Paul uses to describe Philemon. He says, in the same way you're my beloved brother, Onesimus is now your beloved brother. There's a partnership here that we just can't get away from. Paul is arguing here for restoration and transformation of their relationship. And that kind of restoration hinges on forgiveness. This kind of restoration and transformation hinges on forgiveness. Onesimus the slave has deeply offended Philemon his master. He has added insult to injury in running away and now he's back. And Philemon, the master, has every right to be upset. He has every cultural expectation to give Onesimus a harsh response. His neighbors would say, crucify him. That's what you do with the wicked slave. That's what you do with the runaway. When you catch him, you crucify him so that no one else tries something like that. That's what all of Philemon's neighbors would be saying. And yet, Philemon knows what it's like to be forgiven. He's experienced forgiveness from the Lord for his sins. And he knows that there is an expectation that as one who has been forgiven, he will forgive. You remember that story that Jesus tells to illustrate this about the the slave who owed his master like a fortune. Like the biggest fortune you could imagine. But he can't repay it. So he goes to his master and he says, Master, I I don't have the means to repay this. Will you forgive me? And the master forgives the slave his debt and sets him free. 
And that same forgiven slave goes over to another slave who's a friend of his who owes him like pocket change. And he says, you pay me what you owe me. Grabs him by the neck and starts to choke him out. That's messed up, isn't it? That's why Jesus tells the story. It's messed up. Nobody who's been forgiven like that does something like this, right? And Philemon has been forgiven like that. He knows what it's like to experience grace from God. And there is an expectation that as a forgiven man, he will be a forgiving man. And what's more, the text tells us that the offender is no longer just his slave. He's his brother in Christ. If, I had, if there's an expectation on followers of Jesus to be generally forgiving people, how much more is the expectation that we would forgive our brothers and sisters when they have offended us? There is a serious expectation of forgiveness here. And if there's going to be restoration, there has to be forgiveness. But let's not, in the midst of this, forget about the importance of repentance as well. It is forgiveness and repentance that lead to restoration. In fact, maybe we should say it is repentance and forgiveness that lead to restoration. Philemon, the master, could forgive Onesimus from a distance, right? Philemon, back at home in Colossae, could have looked through his telescope over to Rome and in his heart settled, I forgive him. I forgive Onesimus. From a distance, he could forgive him and no longer hold it against him in his own heart. But if there's going to be a restoration of the relationship, there's got to be repentance on the part of Onesimus. And there is. There is. Because he doesn't stay in Rome. Onesimus, as a new follower of Jesus, goes back to Philemon to try to make it right. So now we've got the offender who's repenting and the expectation that the offended will forgive. And there is potential that there could be real restoration. That's what we want to see, right? That's what we want to see in the church when we are at odds with one another. We want to see real repentance and real forgiveness that leads to real restoration. And it can happen because God does that for us in Christ. Notice also that there's a new brotherhood between these two. Their relationship is no longer just a slave and a master, but brothers. And that's a massive transformation. Paul has a new relationship with Onesimus. He speaks of it. I'm sending you my very heart when I send him back to you. He's my partner. Receive him like you would receive me. And Paul wants Philemon and Onesimus to experience some of what he and Onesimus share together. This healthy, happy, good relationship of peace that ultimately comes from God. So two applications for this part. Number one, restoration, real restoration. I'm not talking about peace, peace, but there is no peace. Talking about real restoration involves both repentance and forgiveness. So the question I have for you and I have for me is which do you need to do today? You you got some relationship that is messed up right now, right? You've got some kind of Philemon Onesimus thing going with somebody. Some days you're Philemon and some days you're Onesimus. And I'm asking you today for the situation that is bothering you, for the situation that troubles you regularly, which do you need to do? Do you need to repent like Onesimus did and go back to Philemon, not knowing how you'll be received, but wanting, wanting to do the right thing even when it's a hard thing? Or do you need to be like Philemon should be? Maybe Onesimus has already come back to you and you said crucify. 
And you should say, I forgive you, brother, and I'll treat you like my brother now. Restoration, real restoration, involves both repentance and forgiveness. Which do you need to do today? And number two, in Christ, we are transformed, and therefore our relationships with one another are transformed. This vertical change that we experience with God when we come to faith in Christ has a horizontal impact on our relationships with other people. We're no longer slave and free man. We're no longer boss and just boss and employee. We're brothers and sisters now. We are family. And that is a massively transformed relationship. And we need to learn what it looks like to live out that relationship. So we'll go back over this in a minute, but there are four applications from the text. I told you when we started studying Philemon, there's this issue that we've got to deal with at some point, And it's the issue of slavery. What, what do we make of this? That the Bible speaks about the relationships between slaves and masters. This whole book makes us a little uncomfortable. This whole letter makes us a little uncomfortable because it deals with slaves and masters. It also makes us a little uncomfortable because Paul never spells out exactly what he wants Philemon to do with Onesimus. He never gives him like step-by-step, concrete, clear instructions about what to do. Should he welcome him back, forgive him, and then let him continue to serve as a slave, though now not just a slave, but a brother, a faithful, hardworking slave who should be treated with dignity and respect? Sure, that'd be, that'd be a fine thing to do. Should he welcome him back as a brother, no longer a slave at all, but a member of his household like a family, a free man, and a practical and social equal? Is that what Philemon should do with Onesimus? Sure, that'd be a fine thing to do. Or should Philemon forgive Onesimus, reconcile to him, and then immediately send him back to Paul as a surrogate servant on his behalf? Is that what he should do? Sure, that'd be a fine thing to do. Here's what I think is going on. Paul intentionally does not give Philemon the details so that Philemon's walk of faith would not be merely checking off boxes on a list or mindlessly following rules. Rather, Paul invites Philemon to come to see Onesimus in a whole new light, as a brother, as a partner. And then Paul leaves it up to Philemon to determine with the guidance of God's word, the guidance of God's spirit, and the help of the church. By the way, this whole letter is addressed also to the church. With the help of the church to know exactly what he should do with this new brother. In other words, Paul is helping Philemon learn how to think. Rather than simply telling him what to think or what to do. And Paul is ultimately trusting in the power of the gospel and the new identity that is ours in Christ to impact the way we deal with people and the way we deal with social issues. Rather than just attacking the issue head on, he is attacking the heart, which is ultimately the problem, right? The problem with slavery is not slavery. It's hearts that would enslave other men. And the answer is a redeemed heart that wouldn't want to enslave Another man. Now this may be dissatisfying, unsatisfying for some of us who would prefer Paul to condemn slavery outright and command Philemon not only to free Onesimus 
but to free all of his other slaves as well. Don't you, don't you kind of wish that was what happened here? Wouldn't that make it easier? Might make it easier. But what Paul is doing here is better. In fact, Paul's approach to toppling the social evil of slavery is to help Christians develop a biblical worldview. Paul is going deeper than mere issue level. He's going underneath the foundation of that issue and he's mining it out with the gospel so that once the gospel has done, it, done its work, the whole foundation collapses and the thing comes tumbling down. Paul's approach is a better way of toppling social ills like slavery. He's helping Christians develop a biblical worldview. He's teaching them to view all of life through the gospel lens. And as this takes root in the hearts of believers, the foundation of all kinds of social ills will be undermined and eventually fall. Take slavery as an example. If we learn what it means to love God and love our neighbor, slavery will end. If we learn to value human life as precious in God's sight because every man, woman, and boy and girl on the planet was created in His image. If we have a worldview that is resting on that, we will not enslave one another and treat one another harshly. It will fall down. And I'm telling you, Paul's, Paul's approach to social issues is better than just going at them up here. It is better to go at them down here at their very foundation. Take abortion. Passing laws against abortion is a good thing. It grieves me to live in a state that has the kind of laws that support abortion like we have. It grieves every believer. I don't think we have to say that in this room. It's a given. But passing laws, signing petitions... Ranting on Facebook will not create the kind of lasting change we're looking for. When people's hearts are gripped by the Lord Jesus Christ, when they come to see Him as the greatest treasure of life, when people come to see children as a gift from the Lord and a blessing, that's when abortion comes tumbling down. When people's hearts are changed. Now in the meantime... Write letters, pass laws, and all of those things. But don't just fight here. Fight with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's where lives are really changed. Lost people are going to act like lost people. Until they're not lost people anymore. For lost people to become saved people, somebody's got to preach the gospel. So let's preach the gospel. Let me say it a different way. We deal with social issues, whatever they are, and there are a zillion of them I can mention. We deal with social issues with the gospel. The gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel which transforms the believer's view of each other. One friend of mine said it this way earlier this week. We must be less issue people and more gospel people. Not saying we ignore social issues, but we take a deeper approach to addressing them. We write letters, we run for office, we pick it, but all the more we pray, we preach, and we serve. This is why I love so much the Pregnancy Resource Center at First Baptist. 
because it, it, is, it is a gospel approach to the problem. It is, it is not a mere social quest. It's a gospel project. The goal is not just to see more babies born. The goal is to see lives changed, hearts changed, people redeemed. And in consequence to that, more babies are born. Because saved people do save people stuff. And converted people don't do lost people stuff. Paul is teaching worldview, not issues and rules. Because he has confidence that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. It has vertical implications and it has horizontal implications. So write letters, run for office, pass laws. But preach the gospel in it all. That's really the only hope we have. So let's develop application number one. Let's develop together a Christian worldview that is informed by the Bible and directed by the Spirit of God. This will allow us to think through difficult situations and act in a godly manner rather than simply, mindlessly following a rule. God wants us to follow Him. Application number two, be confident in the sovereignty and goodness of God. Settle it today in your head and in your heart. Three, be useful where you are, wherever you are. Let the sovereignty of God encourage you to persevere through difficult circumstance because you know he's working. Even in your pain, he's at work. Fourth, restoration involves repentance and forgiveness. Which do you need to do today? And finally, in Christ, our relationships are transformed with one another. We're no longer what the world says we are. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family. Let's treat each other like family. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us to to hear and take away everything that was right and true and good. And help us to leave everything that was not. Everything that was mine, not yours. Help us to leave it on the floor. Take what was yours. And be changed by it. We want to know what it's like to live as redeemed people. How to engage this lost, broken world around us. We want to have confidence in the gospel to change lives to the extent that we preach the gospel so that lives are changed. Help us navigate difficult waters. And we're thankful for your sovereign rule over all things. Your goodness to us in all things. We pray that that truth will empower our endurance, our perseverance, our usefulness, no matter the circumstance. Thank you for the times we can look back and see exactly what it is you were doing in the hard things. And give us faith to trust you when we cannot see. Give us faith that trusts your heart and not just your hand. 
Help us respond rightly to your word. For those who are far from you, I pray that you'll wake them up, call them out of the grave into life. Give them faith to trust in Jesus and repentance to turn from sin. Be glorified as you rescue and redeem for your own glory in Christ's name.